Greetings to those who watch below. Due to being sacrificed to the Wicker Man on Friday, we're going to be having our paranormal road trip tales today. And today we are visiting South Carolina. But before we start, I'd like to say thank you to those who dwell below. An exclusive channel membership you can check out using the link in the description box. So thank you to Steffi Ray, Wicked Witch, Lisa Watts, Lefty Kim, M.A. Wade, Julie B., Jess Black Curtain, Christina Groves, LT Punisher 666, Chris BLK Chris, and Canopsia. Also, if for some reason you weren't aware, I'm also running the Creepypasta.com YouTube channel. So if you're interested in Creepypastas and want to hear some truly terrifying ones I picked out, make sure to check out the channel. Also, you can find me on Instagram at brimstone underscore below and on Facebook at brimstone below horror channel. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy. The Old Lighthouse by Manafon 1 The following account took place in the late summer of 1982. This story concerns in particular two events that happened that summer night on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, where I lived at the time. In 1982, Hilton Head, which is now a huge resort island, was largely developed, but still retained several undisturbed tracts of wilderness. One of these was close to a 1,000-acre wooded area that stretched from the Atlantic Ocean to Highway 278. Back then, it was only one lane each way. Today, it is several lanes in each direction. This undeveloped area, then as now, has a cast-iron skeleton-supported lighthouse. It is referred to variously as the Hilton Head Rearranged Light, the Lemington Lighthouse, or, to my friends and I, simply as the Old Lighthouse. Hilton Head is noted for its famous red and white striped lighthouse in Harbour Town a few miles away. That lighthouse was constructed for decorative purposes in 1969. The rearranged light was constructed in 1880, and originally its beacon was matched up with a front-range light on the beach. When the two lights were lined up, one over the other, ship captains knew it was time to begin their turn into the Savannah Shipping Canal. The light was deactivated in 1932. The rearranged lighthouse is far from the ocean. After the light was decommissioned, the area surrounding it became Camp McDougall, a marine training facility. Thousands of men trained there between 1938 and 1942. After that, the area was used for hunting. By the time I lived on the island, it was a quiet forest and the largest of the remaining undeveloped chunks of land left. There were, of course, no trespassing signs about, but for a young teenage guy, these meant very little. The one-time Lemington Plantation has now become part of Palmetto Dunes Resort, and the light now stands guard over the Arthur Hills Golf Course. Six acres immediately around the light are protected from development and in 1983, the old structure was added to the National Register of Historic Places. Then, as now, I have always felt a deep connection with the light. I have a painting of it in my living room. Besides the lighthouse, there are a few remaining structures. A building that housed the generator for the camp, with the words power plant on a plaque above its front doors. The oil shed that housed the oil for the lighthouse lamps, the foundations of the two keepers' houses, which were moved to Harbour Town and renovated, and a massive concrete cistern, 
and other foundations where the camp's hospital had stood. The light and the surrounding woods became one of the major hangouts for me and my circle of friends. Endless hours were spent hanging out in the old lab room, climbing around the outside of the lighthouse on its skeleton frame, and running through the forest. Having a special place like this to go provided for fresh adventures each time. Local folklore surrounding the lighthouse claimed that a lightkeeper named Adam Fripp suffered a heart attack during a hurricane while climbing the spiral staircase of the light to keep the lamps lit. Legend states that his daughter Caroline found Adam dead at the base of the staircase and was forced to tend the light herself. She reportedly dragged her father back to the house and pulled him up step by step as the storm surge pushed the water higher and higher. Exhausted and half crazy, she was supposedly found a few days later, only to die soon thereafter. From that point on, her ghostly figure has supposedly been seen on moonless nights walking up the spiral staircase weeping. Well, that's the legend, and every lighthouse needs one. She is referred to as either the Blue Lady or the Lady in Blue. The blue aspect stemmed from her always wearing a blue flower or dress. One problem with this story is that there is no record of a keeper named Fripp ever tending the rear or front range lights. After talking about it for some time, my friend Billy and I decided we were going to have a real adventure and spend the night at the lighthouse and see if we could see the blue lady ourselves. On a rainy Saturday, just before dusk, Billy's mum dropped us off at the old hidden and dilapidated road which led to the light. This road was no longer accessible to vehicles. A large trench cut it off from Highway 278. This wonderful old road was our entrance into a time machine of the mind. It wound its way first past the aforementioned power plant building, then a short distance away the foundations of the keeper's houses, then a huge foundation where I believe the hospital once stood. Finally rounding a curve in the road, the pine and live oak trees would part and the hulking rearranged light sprang into full view. Constructed of iron, the slender tube that contains the staircase is supported by a steel skeletal framework. In the late 1980s, the light was restored, but when I used to visit it, rust bled heavily down its side, giving way only sporadically to the few flecks of the remaining white paint. Billy and I set up our small two-person tent off a small path covered with low-hanging Spanish moss-covered branches, about 20 yards from the lighthouse and just in front of the larger foundation. We had supplies for the night, food, water, flashlights, kerosene lamp, a radio, and a couple of baseball bats and a pellet gun. After all, we were both 15 at the time, and we were, for all intents and purposes, in the middle of nowhere. After we set up, we ventured onto the lighthouse to see the night come. Neither Billy or I had ever been to the lighthouse after dark, and to see it that way was strange. The massive live oak tree directly in front of the light, and the brooding presence of the rusting structure in the growing evening shadows was quite eerie. It was also quite exhilarating. After climbing to the top, we returned to our tent, as the rain was becoming somewhat heavy. Not only was it raining, but it was a moonless night, and the whole area was as black as pitch. Anyone who has ever lived in a rural area knows how incredibly dark it can be when there are no lights at all nearby. 
the thick humidity somehow makes it feel even darker. In daylight, my buddies and I would regularly joke about the Lady in Blue, but Billy and I now afforded her legend a bit of respect. To get our minds off being afraid, we blasted the radio, ate, and told jokes. This worked brilliantly for a couple of hours. However, the first of the two paranormal occurrences was about to transpire. Billy was laying back on his sleeping bag, flipping through a magazine, and the rain had lightened up a bit. I thought I would take a peek outside. Unzipping the front of the tent, I peered out. What I saw completely caught me off guard. I could see clearly over the small path we were on, over the old foundation, and well into the woods on the other side. It was the light that really took me by surprise, and particularly where it was coming from. There was a milky low-lying fog, which weaved its way all around the trees I could see, but didn't actually touch them. It came within six inches or so, and then curled around them. Looking directly down, I saw the fog or mist did the same thing with our tent. Above it, there was nothing. The light illuminating the woods seemed to come from the strange fog itself. Unlike any fog or mist I have encountered before or since, this stuff looked like a thick liquid, and moved and undulated very, very oddly. Billy was by my side now, looking at the weird living mist as well. We both mentioned how we couldn't see through it. It completely hid the earth underneath. The light was a bluish white, and was surprisingly bright. Before deciding to tell this account, I went online to research different types of fog. I was really surprised at how many different types there are, but none of them was anything like this. It's important for me to add that the lighthouse was located on slightly higher ground than much of the island, not more than 30 feet or so above sea level, and there were no marshes nearby, so it wasn't some kind of luminescent marsh gas. I lived on the island for six years. My family and I had visited it since 1973, and I have visited it several times since then, and have never seen anything remotely like it. It struck me that with all the thousands of people who were trained at Camp McDougall, this might have been some remaining group energy, that, like an apparition, has imbued the atmosphere with a palpable energy, and appears once in a while when people like Billy and I are caught up in the apparitional drama. For the remainder of the night, Billy and I were uneasy, and we didn't look out of the tent again. We had difficulty occupying our time, much less sleeping. It wasn't as though we were particularly frightened by the weird fog, just completely baffled by it. We noticed an odd regular pattern of rain that fell onto our tent. One, pause, two, three, four, pause, five. I still remember the pattern as it seemed to continue endlessly, and being in a thick forest in a supposedly haunted area on a rainy night with a weird fog surrounding us did nothing to dispel the thought that someone or something was pouring water on the tent in a purposeful manner. It was a bit maddening. The final paranormal occurrence happened around 5am. I was finally on the brink of an uneasy sleep when the most bizarre and horrifying scream I've ever heard cut ferociously through the woods. It sounded like a mixture of an infant, a wild pig, and a possessed man. It lasted for five seconds or so, and when it stopped, there was absolutely no sound. 
The rain had stopped. There was no early morning bird song. Absolutely nothing. I know that sounds dramatic, but it is exactly what happened. Billy and I exchanged glances, stuffed our backpacks, disassembled the tent, and as quickly as possible, made our way up the abandoned road. The mist, by the way, was completely gone, which, at least to me, really suggests that it wasn't a normal phenomena. I lived on the island for six years, and never again heard anything even close to this scream. It still echoes in my mind 34 years later. Maybe it was the ghost of a one-time lightkeeper. At least one was buried on the property. Maybe it was the echo of a drill sergeant screaming at some green recruits from the Camp McDougall days. The emotions of the men shipping in and out on a weekly basis, and then off to war, could theoretically have left an intense impression on the location. I've even considered it being the war whoop of a Confederate soldier. There had been some skirmishes on the island in the Civil War, and the rebel yell was said to be unmistakable. Whatever it was, the blue lady, an old lightkeeper, rebel soldier, drill sergeant, or something else entirely, it wasn't a living person. It was simply too weirdly loud, as if it was somehow amplified. Billy and I both agreed it was the most blood-curdling and creepy sound we have ever heard. That still stands for me today. The Lemington Lighthouse is woven into my very being. My wife and I were able to obtain special permission to enter and climb up the lighthouse in 1993. It's not open to the public, so it was quite an honour. It was like visiting an old friend. Creepy encounters or not, it remains a very special place to me. The Third Eye Man The Third Eye Man was first spotted on November 12, 1949, on the campus of the University of South Carolina. According to school records, a strange man dressed in bright silver was sighted opening a manhole cover on the corner of Sumter and Green Streets, directly opposite the historic Longstreet Theatre. At 10.43pm, two male students watched as this man entered the sewer portal and diligently pulled the manhole cover into its proper position. One of the students, Christopher Nichols, wrote for the Gamecock and immediately spread the news of this sewer man, as he was called in the article. After a few weeks, any interest in the sewer man died down. Almost six months later, on April 7th, 1950, this sewer man was spotted again. A university police officer on patrol came across two mutilated chickens behind Longstreet Theatre. Feathers and chicken parts were strewn all over the loading dock of Longstreet. Believing that this mess was left by frat students or some other pranksters, the officer walked back to his car to report the scene. After calling into the station, the officer returned to the loading dock, only to discover a silver man huddled over the chicken pieces. Immediately, the officer turned his flashlight on this man, who looked up at the cop. In the beam of the light, the officer could make out a very disturbing face, grotesque in colour and shape, and in the middle of this man's forehead, a third eye. It wasn't a large eye, but nevertheless, there was a third eye staring back at the cop. The policeman retreated from the scene and called him back up. When other officers arrived on the scene, there was nothing left on the loading dock except for a few scattered feathers and bones. 
Of course, the cop who witnessed this third eye man was in hysterics and was never able to convince the other officers of what he saw. In the late 1960s, the catacombs or underground tunnels at the university were a favourite place for students. These tunnels connected most of the university. One night in early October, a group of frat guys decided to take three pledges down the tunnels for a challenge. Entering the tunnels from the basement of Gambrel, the group of guys headed west towards the horseshoe. As they rounded the first corner, they were met by a crippled-looking man dressed all in silver, according to police reports. This bizarre-looking man charged at the students with a lead pipe, and suddenly the frat boys realised that this was no prank. One of the pledges, Matthew Tabor, was knocked to the ground by the creature and suffered minor cuts and minor shock. Two of the older boys immediately went to the police department, and that evening, the first Third Eye Man hunt took place. After hours of searching the tunnels, the police came up with nothing. However, they did take precautions by sealing off most of the entrances to the catacombs, and by declaring the tunnels off-limit to any person, student, or faculty member. According to one of the maintenance men who still works at the university today, we don't use the tunnels unless it is absolutely necessary. There have been several sightings of the Third Eye Man in the late 80s and early 90s, though most were dismissed by the university police force. Those who are adventurous enough to climb down into the tunnels risk being suspended from school. Students will find a way into the catacombs from time to time, but there is always the possibility that they will come face to face with the ominous Third Eye Man. Restroom Ghost by Seacat This took place a few years back. There is a meat and three type restaurant in my hometown that's known for the great food and wonderful staff. It is run out of a building that was an old elementary school many years ago by a small group of very religious women. They have gospel groups there to play on Friday and Saturday nights and the ladies are very sweet, pleasant and they cook fantastic meals. My sister called me up one day and asked me to meet her there for lunch. I am always willing to get a home-cooked meal there. So my sister Kay and I had a wonderful lunch and conversation with a couple of the ladies and were just sitting and chatting while drinking tea. I had to go to the restroom and asked Kay where it was. She directed me up a short set of stairs through the old kitchen and said it was in the hall on the other side of the old kitchen. I trotted up the stairs and saw the old school kitchen to my left, a large open room with lots of counters, but empty as the ladies had a smaller area downstairs where they cooked. As I stepped into the kitchen to cross it, I was struck by how incredibly cold the room was. It was summertime down south, and it wasn't this cold in any other area of the building. Odd. About halfway across the room, I suddenly had the feeling that I was being watched and I became very fearful. I hurried through and into the restroom. The restroom was what you would expect from an old schoolhouse. A small room, two stalls and a sink. The stall on the right was occupied, as I saw shoes under the door. So I headed into the one on the left. In a few seconds, I heard the other toilet flush, the squeaky door open, and the other person walk to the sink and wash their hands before leaving. I saw their feet pass by my stall, 
but I never really got a good look at the person. I finished up and headed back to the table, but took the long way around to avoid going back through the kitchen. In chatting with Kay, I mentioned how cute the little schoolhouse restroom was, with its two stalls and the squeaky wooden door. My sister, who still lived in our hometown and frequented this restaurant much more than I did, gave me a strange look and said, There's only one working toilet in there. The other stall has no toilet in it and they've got boxes stored there. I told her that there had been someone in that stall who had flushed, walked out, washed their hands and left while I was still in my stall, that I had seen their brown loafer-type shoes under the door. I suggested that maybe they had put the second one back into use. She shook her head and said, I was just here a couple of days ago and there were boxes stacked in it. We decided that we would both head back to the restroom to see. I had not mentioned to Kay about my uneasiness with the kitchen, but as we got to the top of the stairs, she hesitated, then looked at me and asked if I minded if we went around the kitchen instead of through it. She said the kitchen made her uneasy. I asked, like you're being watched? She nodded and said, you too. I told her about my experience with the kitchen earlier. We both found that odd. So we strolled into the restroom and I go to the stalls to open the door to the one on the right and show her a perfectly good working toilet. And I stopped dead in my tracks. There was no door on the front of the stall. There was no toilet in the stall and it was packed front to back, side to side with boxes. Did I interrupt a ghost having a pee? I don't know. I know what I saw. I know what I heard. I've had many unusual experiences in my life, but this one always stands out in my mind as one of the oddest. The Tomb of J.B. Laguerre According to legend, there's a reason the tomb of J.B. Laguerre is unsealed in the old Presbyterian churchyard on Edisto Island. The Presbyterian Church on Edisto Island, South Carolina, is a beautiful Greek revival building, completed in the 1830s, on the spot of two earlier churches. The Edisto Island Congregation was established in 1685, and the graveyard dates back to at least 1792. Spanish moss and ornate ironwork fences add to the spooky Southern Gothic ambience of the cemetery, which also features a mausoleum with a legendary ghost story. The legend of Julia Laguerre varies from source to source. In some versions, she was a young girl, and in others, she was the wife of a wealthy planter on Edisto Island, South Carolina, not far from Charleston. In all versions of the story, Julia contracted an illness, usually listed as diphtheria, that caused her to be pronounced dead in 1852. She was promptly buried in the Laguerre Mausoleum in the cemetery of the Presbyterian Church on Edisto Island. The door was sealed and remained shut until the death of another family member several years later. Upon reopening the tomb door, the Laguerre family discovered Julia's decayed remains lying behind the door. Scratch marks on the interior of the door caused the family to realise, to their great horror, that they had buried Julia alive. After reburying Julia's bones in the body of the second deceased relative, the door was resealed, but it refused to stay closed. 
parishioners repeatedly found the door unlocked and standing open. No chains or locks could keep the door closed. In some versions of the story, the door was discovered broken time after time. Eventually, members of the church gave up trying to seal the door and removed it altogether. Three headstones on the interior wall of the mausoleum list the occupants as John Barrick Lagarde, who died in 1856, his wife Julia, who died in 1852, and son Hugh Swinton, who died aged six in 1854. The real Julia Lagarde was the pretty young wife of planter John Berwick Lagarde on Edisto Island. She gave birth to three children before her death at just 22 years of age. Hi guys, thank you so much for listening to today's video. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to leave a like and also subscribe to the channel if you haven't already, making sure you hit that notification bell so that you never miss a video. So, until next time, sleep tight.